0: Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Um, pardon our transition and dust as we're uh, trying to expand our little sanctuary as much as we can. If you came in and you didn't get sermon notes or you need a Bible or a pen, if you would raise your hand and one of our guys can help you with that. Like, um, and if you're here for the first time, we're glad you're here. You will need sermon notes. Uh, there's a lot to cover this morning. So if you need them, raise your hand. We can get those, those to you. I guess everybody's good? Okay. You've been warned. All right, so I have a confession to make. I think I misled you last week. I told you that we're going to conclude in Proverbs 31 this morning. Uh, We're not, because there's so much in it. Uh, There will be a part two and a part three. So, (laughs) uh, and all the people call me blessed. All right, no, it's just, I just couldn't cram it all into one week, and there's a lot of good stuff here. And this is a great setup for our uh, women's ministry discussion next week. So before beginning a new study, uh and the ladies decided it'd be best to talk about Proverbs 31. So if you're a woman, you are invited to come next week after service, have a lunch with the ladies, and talk about what you've learned in the last couple weeks, Proverbs 31, and um, where you've been encouraged, and maybe some of your ideas about Proverbs 31 and womanhood has been challenged in a good way through this. So last week we did a bit of an overview over the entire chapter and womanhood in general in the book. And so first I want to give you some, before we dig in, I want to give you some exegetical keys to study verses 10 through 31. What does the word exegetical mean? It just means here's how to pull all out of the text that you can. And so when we approach scripture, we don't put ourselves in it. We take what God has put in it out to apply to ourselves. So that's exegesis we take out of the text. So, number one, if you've been with us for a while, or if you're, if you're here for the first time and you're not familiar with the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 31 is the conclusion, the climax to the entire book. Proverbs 31 is the final word on wisdom. When all else is stripped away, when everything else is gone, the one who stands is the excellent wife, i.e., Lady Wisdom. This in, uh, so we'll get technical for a moment here, but I think this is is helpful. So this this genre of writing is an an encomium, E-N-C-O-M-I-U-M, encomium. Basically what that means is it is um, a hymn or a song or something that, or a a type of writing that uh, praises a particular ideal, attribute, character. Um, We read Psalm 112 last week. Psalm 1 is very similar. And so in these enconiums, it doesn't have one person in mind. It has a type of person in mind. It is praising a, a, a set of behaviors or a uh, character. And so Psalm 1, blessed is the man. This doesn't have one man in mind. This has any man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This is Proverbs 31, the excellent wife, looked at in the same way. This also serves as kind of a summary and overview of the entire book. So we, over the past several months, have been going through the major themes in the proverbial portion of the book chapters 10 through chapter 30 and so we're going to be drawing out a lot of those themes as we go and so there are going to be a lot of cross references they'll be in your your notes that's why you need your your sermon notes Uh, and that's just scratching the surface but the idea here is this lady wisdom is this this ideal caricature of all of the wisdom and godly attributes that we've seen before um Also, we mentioned this last week, this is an acrostic. So an acrostic is a word that that describes something where each letter has a significance tied to the other letters. Like we use an acrostic for our vision statement, tell, teach truth, exalt Christ, love the Lord, lead in the spirit. Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, is a Hebrew acrostic. Each section begins with with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So when you would read this in the Hebrew alphabet, you would see A, B. C, D, going all the way down from Aleph to Tav, going through the whole Hebrew alphabet. So when you read this in the Hebrew, uh, if you're someone reading this, you would see that these are the ABCs of wisdom. And so just kind of laid out in that that way. Um, This is a beautiful and technically precise poem. So this is not a narrative. This is not a how-to manual. This is a poem extolling the, the beautiful femininity of divine wisdom. And so we'll bring some of that to light today. So what I want you to get, before we get into our portion, we're going to look at verses 10 through 19 this morning. Um, this poem, the entire poem, is to be read on the basis of verse 10. Verse 10 is our foundation and kind of the, the, the thesis of everything coming afterward. An excellent wife who can find. She is more precious than jewels. The entire poem is to be read with that as the lens for the purpose of making its final and most important point in verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. We begin with the question, who can find an excellent wife? We end with the question, what is an excellent wife? And so everything in between supports the beginning and the end. So this week we're going to look at the first half where she's a blessing to her family. Next week, we're going to look at her as a blessing to her community and being blessed by her family and her community in response. So those are the exegetical keys to studying Proverbs 31. Now here's the practical keys. When we read this, we're going to apply it, or excuse me, we're going to read it on two levels, and we're going to apply it on a third level. Level number one, this is extolling or encouraging marriage. This is building up and commending a godly wife. This is a virtuous and industrious woman who should be exemplified and emulated. This is a picture of marriage, but it is not only a picture of marriage. Number two, this displays divine wisdom. And so everything we've been looking at up to this point, there are two paths in the book of Proverbs. There's one path that leads to life, and it is the path of prudence and wisdom and righteousness. And there's one path that leads to death, and it is the path of wickedness and folly and laziness and everything else. This divine wisdom, this, this righteous path is personified. And it's exemplified against the wicked and foolish paths of the adulterous woman. This conflict we saw last week, and we saw in the first nine chapters between Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, the faithful, godly woman, and the adulterous, sensuous woman. And so she is the epitome, the personification of divine wisdom. And so this wife, she is industrious because she's godly, and she's to be commended because she fears the Lord. All of her industry is not just to say, oh, I must do all these things. She only does those things because she's godly. We don't commend her because she does these things. We commend her because she fears the Lord. And because she fears the Lord, she does what she does. Make sense? Amen. Wisdom is in the female form here, yet it serves as an example for us all. So men, just because we're talking about a woman here, and, the, and I think that's often what happens, is women read this and think, man, I fall short in every one of these lines, and so why even try? And men read this like, oh, it's about women, so I, I, don't, I need to check my, turn my brain off and not pay attention. Uh, both of those are incorrect. So also, this is admittable but not attainable. The word admittable uh, means worthy of imitation. It is worthy of imitation, but it is not attainable. So what does, that, what does that mean? It means that this ideal is a lifelong pursuit, but you will, as a woman, you will never attain it. You're not meant to because this is divine wisdom. This, this is perfection, and none of us are there yet. So therefore, we read it on two levels, and we apply it on a third. Here's how we apply it. We apply it as the church, as the bride of Christ. So as we read this, As this woman does everything she does for the benefit of her husband's name and the family business and the building up of her home, we as the bride of Christ do the same. The church, everything we do is for the name of our bridegroom. Everything we do and say is so that his family, his brothers, his sisters, his church are built up and blessed through what he's given us. So I want to give you a, uh, if you're new to this, this concept of God being husband and church being bride, uh, this, is, this is a uh, Old Testament reality that is expounded in the New Testament. So I want to bring up a few passages, two from Isaiah, one from John. So Isaiah 54 Isaiah is not a book about the people's faithfulness. It's a book about God's faithfulness. Look how God describes himself to an unfaithful people. Isaiah 54, verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you. How? Like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. That is his people's relationship. That is our relationship with our God. We are an adulterous, deserting wife who does not not deserve to be loved, but he has compassion on us as our Redeemer. Isaiah goes on to say in chapter 61, verse 10, This should cause his people to rejoice. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. If you are in Christ, this means so much. Because no longer do we wear the garments of a prostitute. We wear the garments of a spotless bride. We looked at that earlier in our intercessory prayer in Revelation 19. He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with his beautiful headdress, our bridegroom is also our high priest. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, our crown of salvation for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. The fulfillment of the gospel is a husband redeeming his wife, making her beautiful. And she, and this is a beautiful picture here this morning, and we'll, we will flesh that out. I want to look at one more. The last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. Yes, I know he's in the right side of the book, uh, but until the new covenant comes, he is the last of the, the, the prophets, the, the one preparing the way for the Lord. Look how he responds. Now, we're all familiar with John 3.16, and for God so loved the world, and this transitions into the discussion about baptism, which we'll deal more with at Pentecost and Bible study on Wednesday, so there's a plug for that. Um... But notice what John says. We're going to skip down to the end. How does he see himself? He says this. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So he's not speaking of himself. He is referring to Jesus. The one who he came to point to, to prepare the way for, is the bridegroom. He's the one who has the bride. I'm just the friend. Don't look to me. Don't worship me. I'm, I'm, I'm the best man. He's the one, this is his day of honor. This is, the, the attention is on him. I'm the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I think Robert had that shirt on today. Um, this is the context of him increasing and me de- decreasing. He's the husband, I'm just the friend, I'm the bride prepared for the husband. Everything is for our groom to be exalted, and that's how we will approach our text this morning. So let's read Proverbs 31. Uh, I'm going to read verses 10 through 19. We'll pick up the rest next week, then we'll pray and we'll dive in. Proverbs 31, verse 10. If you do need a Bible, they're they're on the table in the back. We had to tuck them back there because we need more seats. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands. she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands to the spindle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the wisdom of your word. Your ways are so much higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Every time we open the scriptures, we try to plumb your, your depth, and we will never do it. Every time we open the scriptures, we are overwhelmed and confounded at how great you are, and how wise you are, and how perceptive your word is. And even this morning, Lord, there's so much more that your, your word can teach us. We ask that your spirit would prepare our minds to learn Convict our hearts. Draw us to you. Help us to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. Help us to read the scriptures for our edification and for our building up, but for your exaltation. May everything that is said here this morning bring honor and glory to you. And may your people not just rest and let it go in one ear and out the other. But may it take hold. May we be encouraged and convicted. May we be emboldened with whose we are and what we are called to be. May we seek to glorify you and praise your name in all that we say and do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to begin in verse 10. We covered this a little bit last week, but it bears repeating. The first word, the first two Hebrew words, are the theme, the thesis of the entire poem. Eshet chayel, woman of strength, woman of valor, woman of excellence. This is a military term. This is not some weak idea. This is a woman who has the ability to accomplish whatever she sets her mind to. And she is of substance. She is of great value. Eshet chayel. Who can find? The first words of the title give us the theme of the poem. And it's brought up again, this this word, chayel, at the end. In verse 29, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. There is one eshet chayel in this poem. This is not meant to be. Every eshet So this, is, this begins the introduction. The first three verses commend her character. This excellent wife, as we saw in chapter 12, verse 4. She is a crown to her husband. She brings her husband honor and glory, this excellent wife. And so can a husband have that? Absolutely. Can a husband have her? In chapter 31, not quite. So the question here that is asked, an excellent wife, who can find? The question is asked, but the answer is implied. No one. This is an ideal. This is not describing a excellent woman. This is the excellent woman. There is only one, and she only exists as a divine perfection in this form. And so we've seen questions like this. We see this questions like this in Job, uh, probably one you're most familiar with. That they, this is a, a tool used by the inspired writers often, Romans 11. When you ask a question, you know the answer to. And the negative is assumed. Romans 11, verse 34. We know the answer to this. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Ah, uh, well, no one. An excellent wife, who can find? No one, not in this form. Verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Have you given anything to God where he owes you something in return? No. Same idea here. An excellent wife who can find. This is like our pursuit of godly wisdom. We should seek her all of our days. We know her when we see her, but she's always outside of our grasp. Because we will never have perfect wisdom. Until glory, when we meet the one who has wisdom perfectly. We will seek it. We want it. As believers, we desire to fully have the mind of Christ and have all of his wisdom. But we're still in these sinful shells. And so every wife falls short. Every husband falls short. But when... I want to look at Colossians 2, because in Colossians 2, when Paul speaks of his desire for the church, he appeals to the wisdom of Christ. He appeals to their, their, his concern for them, and their striving in him. Not striving in their own efforts, but they're striving in him and for him. We looked at this earlier on in our series as Christ, as the one who's hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, but I want you to get the buildup. And just like Paul, as a pastor, this is my desire for you. Chapter 2, verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery." That is the pastoral desire. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be knit together in love. I want you to be fully assured of your salvation. And what is that? Which is Christ. And so if we look at Proverbs 31 as if like, I need to be that person or or that's the kind of wife I need to have, you can't. Because only in Christ, verse 31, or verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the only one. He is the only all-wise. Like I said last week, this is not like 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications of an elder. This is what an elder must be. This is not, this is what a woman must be. But again, it's the indicative of the excellent wife. You can be an excellent wife, but you will never be the excellent wife. You will always fall short. And this is the problem of all mankind, not just us. So back in Proverbs, look at Proverbs. And so we're gonna look at a lot of cross-references, But that's why I put them in your notes. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man, who can find? Same question. Who can find an excellent wife? Who can find a faithful human being? The answer is implied, no one. Uh, Solomon expands on this a little bit. The next book to the right in your Bible, if you go to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Solomon wrestles with this same idea. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. He says, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her. But the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I find, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. Solomon, the wisest man on all earth, has not found the answer, a satisfactory answer to sin and the fallen condition and the faithlessness of man. He says, one man among a thousand I found. Maybe there's one man in a thousand, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is our story. God made us perfect with all wisdom, being able to follow and obey him faithfully, but we seek out schemes. We seek out our own devices. We listen to the appealing words of the serpent who speaks through the mouth of Lady Folly. Who can find this faithful one? You can't. This side of glory and this side of, this side of Eden and this side of glory, it doesn't exist. There is only one who is all wise. There is only one who is all faithful. And so when we see a question like this, we should look to him. So continuing on with the theme here, this excellent wife, she is more precious than jewels, far more precious. This also is like wisdom. So you can say, all right, Pastor Tim, how do you get to that the excellent wife here is wisdom, lady wisdom? Well, let's look earlier on. The excellent wife is far more precious than jewels. What kind of language is spoken about, about wisdom? Let's look at chapter 3 of Proverbs. Chapter 3, I want to begin in verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels. Same language. And nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. There's a blessedness in even knowing this wise woman. Again, in chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. Speaking of wisdom, again, this is wisdom personified. Take my instruction instead of silver. And knowledge rather than choice gold. Same language, for wisdom is better than jewels. And all that you may desire cannot compare with her. That is a high bar. Nothing you desire, nothing on earth can compare with her. She is far more precious than any jewels. What's what's an undercurrent here? is when the parents are speaking to a young man who's seeking to get married and say, if you find a godly woman, you find a woman who fears the Lord, she is worth any bride price. She is more valuable than all the jewels and all the gold you can amass. And what's going to be laid out here is if you find this woman, she's going to end up being more than a benefit to you than anything you gave up. And so if you're not familiar with this because we don't have it in our culture, the idea of a bride price. If a young man sees a woman he wants to marry or his, his family arranges a woman to marry, he gives a bride price. He comes forth with some kind of, uh, it, it, it's not a dowry, it's the reverse of that. It's, it, it's some kind of um, gift to her father, to her, her family, to show her great value and his commitment to be faithful to her. And this points us to the great mystery. So this was very common in that culture. It's not in ours. But the great mystery that we looked at last week that Paul explains is the mystery of Christ in a church. He fulfilled everything that was expected of a husband in those days. Let me lay this out. First was the betrothal. You make the agreement, I'm going to marry you. The betrothal was done in what we understand is the covenant of grace. Excuse me, covenant of redemption. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father prepared a people that He chose for His Son. He was betrothed to them before we were even created. But in order for that betrothal to take effect, a bride price had to be paid. A cost that was worth the life of that bride, that price was paid on the cross. His blood was the propitiation, the perfect and full price for sin, the cost of our very lives. This is the bride price, which inaugurates the covenant of grace, that through his blood we have life. And so what did a husband do in those days when he paid the, the, the bride price? He went and prepared a suitable home for her. Where is our husband right now? He told his disciples, I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you. And it's going to be glorious because my father's house has many mansions and I'm preparing that for you. That is what our husband is doing right now. When was the marriage made? So it was guaranteed, it was sealed at the bride price. But when was it made official? At the consummation. This is why why when we talk about the story of redemptive history, we talk about creation, fall, redemption, consummation. The consummation of all things is for all of his enemies to be put under his footstool. All of his enemies to be destroyed, including death. And when that is behind him, he can glorify, he can bring his bride to him in the spotless white garments of righteousness. And as we celebrated earlier at the Lord's table, We look forward to the day when we feast again with him. He told his disciples, I will not eat of this meal again until I eat it in the kingdom. That is the marriage supper of the lamb. That is the culmination of all redemptive history. And so when we look at the dynamic between husband and wife and the value of a wife, how valuable does our Savior, our husband hold us that he would lay down his life for us? He loved us at the cost of his own life, and he secured us with his blood and seals us with his spirit, and he promises to prepare a home for us and return for us, and we can believe him. How could we not want to honor the name of that husband, of that Savior? Let's move on. Man, we're just in one verse. We'll go a lot quicker than that. Verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. This is a strong sentiment. It's a beautiful thing when husbands and wives trust each other. But should husbands and wives trust each other? Hopefully, absolutely. But the language here is distinct. The heart of her husband trusts in her. This is something that would not be applied to a human wife. Let me, t- let me show you why. Psalm 118. Psalm 118, 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Like, okay, that's just talking about men and princes. Micah chapter 7. Toward the end of your Bible, the uh, minor prophets Right after Jonah. Chapter 7, verse 5. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. That's intimate language. For the son treats the father with contempt, and the daughter rises against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. This language of putting trust in her, that is divine wisdom. There is only one who we should trust in fully and wholly to that extent. I love my wife, but I don't trust in her for my salvation or my eternity. I trust her, but I don't trust her the same way I trust the Lord. And we're not meant to. But by trusting lady wisdom, he is trusting the Lord. By trusting this ideal, excellent woman, he is trusting the Lord. And if he does, and because he does, he will have no lack of gain. Now here's where the terminology, terminology gets vivid and we don't get it in the English. This is, again, there's a lot of military language in here. The lack of gain, this could be, uh, some of the, the uh, older commentaries would say booty, as in like spoils of war. This is gain, this is spoils of war. You'll lack nothing. What did you take when you conquered another army? You took everything valuable. You took their food, you took their clothing, you took their animals, you took their land, you took their their possessions. She is a strategist. She is victorious in battle and she takes all the spoils of war and she brings them to her husband. She takes the unrighteous mammon and she makes a profit and gives it to her husband. This brings up Battle imagery in life. This type of woman, this type of wisdom is effective because life is difficult. Life is a battle. And if you want to win this war, you better hold the wisdom of God tightly. She will go before you and she will fight the battle for you. And so one of the things that we we don't often realize as we read the Old Testament, their idea of eternal life is not fully developed. We don't know what they fully understood about uh, heaven and hell. And as you read Proverbs, it is solely focused on this life. Sure, it talks about life and death, but it's spoken of with, with finality. Death is the end. And so all of, of Proverbs is walking with the Lord in this life. So obviously we have the fuller revelation of scripture, and we know what it means to have eternal life in Christ. But while you're walking on this earth, you are stuck between two fountains. Okay, what does that mean? We've read in Proverbs several times that five times in Proverbs, something is spoken of as a fountain of life. And uh, one would be 1427. I'll tell you what I mean by the two fountains in just a moment. 1427, so righteousness, wisdom, uh, all kinds of things. But here, 1427, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. So what does it mean we're, we're uh, caught between two fountains? So what was there in the Garden of Eden? There was a, there was a fountain. There was a, uh, a, uh, a tree of life. And again, what's going to happen in the consummation? There's going to be a tree of life. There's going to be rivers of living water. What does Jesus say? Anyone who comes to me will drink rivers of living water. There's a tree of life and a river of life. A tree of life and a river of life. If you're walking with the Lord right now, if you fear the Lord, If you take wisdom in this life, you have a fountain of life. You have a tree of life. And so Proverbs is kind of what happens in between perfection and perfection. How do you walk in a sinful world? How do you avoid all the difficulties of this world? Well, take wisdom. Hold her like an excellent woman. And she will be rivers of living water. She will be a a tree of life to you. All right, let's move on. Verse 12. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Uh, This in the Hebrew is literally she rewards him with good. She's a physical, emotional, spiritual, material benefit to her husband. This should remind us of chapter 18, verse 22 that we looked at last week. Chapter 18, 22 He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. What's implied here is that if you find her, if you hold on to her, every area of your life is going to benefit, especially for young men. You align yourself with the wrong woman, and your life takes a completely different trajectory. But also implied here, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. So in all ways, she benefits him, but in all days... Wisdom never ceases. Wisdom never runs out. Like this fount of living water. Like the depths of the mind of Christ. He's the source of all wisdom. She doesn't run out. And this bridges her praiseworthy character that's commendable in the introduction and then sets up her thoughtful consideration in the body of the poem. So this woman in all ways does him good we're going to show you some of the ways in which she does him good. But as we go on in next week, I want you to notice that she has none of the negative characteristics that we've seen in the book of Proverbs. She is thoughtful. She is disciplined. She's in control. She's not angry. She's not proud. She's not hasty. She's not lazy. She's not hateful. She's not petty. Again, she is divine perfection laid out in feminine form. So if you seek her, the excellent wife, the wisdom of God, you will lack no good thing. And he's going to show you. If you think you're going to lack fooding or f- fooding. clothing, that's what happens when my mind puts two words together, f- fooding. It's clothing, clothing and food together, uh, possessions, success for her family. Consider the ravens. I know what you need. I'll give you more than you ever could wonder, or ask or imagine. Let's look at a couple of examples. Proverbs 10, verse 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Just rest in that for a moment. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. That is true riches. If you hold on to the wisdom of the Lord, if you fear the Lord, you will lack no good thing. And there's no sorrow in the Lord. Praise him for that. Chapter 21. Verse 20, similarly, get specific to you know, the, the contents of a wise person's house. Twenty one twenty. precious treasure and oil are in the wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it, doesn't appreciate it. Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life and righteousness and honor. This is what is being encouraged. Find her, find godly wisdom, sell all that you have for what is valuable in the eyes of God, and you'll be rich for the rest of your life. Amen. So let's move on to verse 13. So, this next section, 13 through 18, um, she uses everything at her disposal to benefit her family. This is a woman of action. Look at the action verbs. She seeks wool and flax. She works She brings, verse 14. She rises, verse 15. She provides, she considers, she plants, she dresses, she makes, she perceives, she puts. This is not a life of inactivity. This is a diligent woman. And here's the uh, structure up here. What I want you to notice is there are two parallel sections. Verse 13 and verse 16 set up uh, two parallel sections. She seeks and considers. This is a thoughtful, deliberate woman. She is not reactive. She is not behind when she plays chess. She's always moves ahead. She's got diligent hands in both 13 and 16. She's got successful trade, uh, her, 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 her merchandise, her, um, her dealings in the world. And there's no night twice. So... There's a lot more to the poetic structure, but I just want you to see the basics. So why this emphasis on, on trade? Why this emphasis on, on work? Because let's, let's be honest. Like We're not hermits. If any of us has clothes on today, we are a, a benefit of trade. We're a benefit of goods and services, supply and demand. It makes the world go round. Every, every meal, every, every trip we take, every piece of, of clothing... We have as a result of trade, and she is a master at it. Her hands, all puns intended, are in it, and she excels at it. Wisdom takes the things of the world, and she makes it benefit her family. Wisdom is not afraid of the things of the world. She doesn't serve them. She doesn't love money, but she makes it serve her. She takes the things of the world, and she glorifies God and builds up her family. And so as we get into these verses and not as much detail as we did earlier, I want you to think about this. Because Christianity has a lot of critics. And so the critics on the chauvinism side, or like the, you know, the 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 ultra conservative side would say that um, women have no place outside of the kitchen. Maybe, Maybe you've grown up in a church like this. Or on the other side, the Critics from the the feminist perspective say that women can only have value outside the home, that there's no value for a woman in the home. Here's the beauty of what we see in the scriptures the Bible shows that women are valuable to their family and their community, just like husbands. But the responsibility begins in the home. Notice as it does here she brings her food from afar food for her household. This is a woman who knows how to use the things of the world for the good of her family, but her first priority is her family. And so we got to be careful we don't land on the ditch on either side. There is great value in caring and providing for your family. That is what honors the Lord. There's also great value in taking that your your skills outside of the home, and we'll get into that more next week. All right, so let's look at verse 13. She seeks wool and flax. These are two very involved uh, textile processes. And so we don't think much of clothing, because every one of us in here, um, unless you're your little house in the prairie, super industrious, you, you bought your clothes from someone else. And so we don't, we don't realize we, can just, we don't realize how easy it is to go to the store and buy whatever you want in whatever color you want, in whatever style you want, at any time you want. It was not so in those days. If you wanted something in particular, you either had to seek a person out who would make it or more often you'd make it yourself. And what's described here is three different processes. She's got to find the material, she's got to process the material and put it into, into thread, and she's got to make it. She's an expert at all three jobs of putting wool and flax together. So if you were in those days to make a a high-quality wool garment, it was worth two months' wages. Probably a couple grand in our money, or in inflation money, maybe 10 grand next year, who knows? (laughs) But this is, like, a a woman like that would be extremely valuable. Because you can't just go to the store or click on Amazon and buy something. If you want something, you've got to acquire it and make it yourself. This is her value. She can do that. Verse 14, she is like the ships of the merchant. Here's something that's interesting. Israel was not a seafaring people. Solomon is the only one who who built boats um, for merchandising purposes. They were on a trade route. You had to go through Israel to get north or to get south. They didn't need to get on ships. But she's like the merchant. Her wisdom brings the wisdom and benefits from all nations into her home. What a beautiful picture of God's common and saving grace. That she brings her food from afar. She takes everything that the world has to offer and she redeems it. And she's not limited to where she is. Verse 15. She rises while it is yet night. This honestly might be the hardest one for most ladies. Um, she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. Uh, here's another thing we missed in, in the English. But the Hebrew paints a picture of a lioness who gets up while it's still dark to hunt. The word for here, here for food is not food, it is prey. She brings home meat to her family. She goes out, she hunts, and she brings back dinner like a lioness. She is fearless and she is strong and she is not lazy. We looked at the sluggards early on. Let's just refresh our memory. Look at chapter six of Proverbs. This is not our wise woman. Chapter six, verse six. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief or officer or ruler. Notice the ant here is also feminine. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food and harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber. And want like an armed man. One more in chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 13. This probably cuts deep for a lot of us in our comfortable and lazy society. Chapter 20, verse 13, love not sleep lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will have plenty of bread. This is a woman who does not love sleep. Her eyes are open early. Her her needs of the family are are before her own comfort. And her maidens, her servants, everyone she employs is diligent and they benefit from her. Everyone benefits from this woman. Verse 16, she considers, she's not hasty. She considers a field and buys it. This is also strong in the Hebrew. She doesn't just buy it, she takes it. The buying is implied because it's from the fruits of her labor, the fruits of her hand. But she sees it, she considers it, she takes. does not take no for an answer. She obtains it. Why? Verse six, or Chapter 13, verse 6. Excuse me, chapter 16, verse 3. These are all running together. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. 21 5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. She is deliberate, she is thoughtful in her decision making and, and planning, and this is a way where the bride of Christ should do the same. Far too often we are reactionary, far too often we're responding to our 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 circumstances, we, we make emotional, impulsive decisions. This is not her. She gets up early. She thinks. She considers. She does things wisely. Why? Because all of her decisions reflect her husband. If she makes a foolish decision, he's going to be looked down on in the gates when he stands with the other elders. Church, if you bear the name of Christian and you act foolishly, and you act rashly. What does that say about the name of your husband? This is how she, again, is our example. Verse 17. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She's got strength. This is, this is not just strength to fight. This is strength to stand and also to withstand. She stands up, she stands up tall, but she also withstands. She can push back the enemy. She has power to accomplish her goals. This again is military language. Chapter 24, verse 5. Same idea. Chapter 24, verse 5. A wise man is full of strength and a man of knowledge. A wise where am I? Yeah. A wise man is full of strength. A man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage your war. In the abundance of counsel, there is victory. Wisdom is too high for a fool. In the gate, he does not open his mouth. This strong woman, again, this is battle imagery. How do we know? The word here for dresses. Gird up your loins. Sounds strange to us, but this is what soldiers did. They would take the long cloak, they would pull it up, they would wrap it because they had to run and they had to fight. She girds up her loins with strength. This is what soldiers are to do in battle. This is the same language that Peter uses for Christians in 1 Peter 1. We had a great discussion on this in our Bible study. It'll be up on the screen. i want to move these last couple verses a little faster. But I want you to get the idea here. We don't really, uh, gird up your loins means nothing to us. But if you were in a culture where you had one set of clothing and you walked around in one and you pulled it up for another to, to fight, Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? All the great salvation that you have in Christ. If he is your husband, if he is your redeemer, therefore, preparing your minds for action, girding up the loins of your mind, get your mind ready for a battle. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here is our conduct, our Our conduct as Christians is used as war language. Gird up the loins of your mind as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Again, we're in between The redemption and the consummation. We are exiles until we come to our new home that our husband is preparing for us. Knowing that you were ransomed, bride price, from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but what was the perfect bride price? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This woman, she girds herself up with strength. What is her strength? the joy of the lord what is our strength the joy of our salvation therefore if you have such a great salvation if christ is our strength if he is for us who can be against us we as the bride of christ can be strong not because we are strong but because when we are weak he is strong we decrease so that he increases let's move on verse 18 she perceives that her merchandise is profitable her lamp does not go out at night this this word in the hebrew there's there's so much here i'm sorry i'm I'm getting nerdy because i'm i'm excited about this um but this could also be translated she tastes she tastes that her merchandise is profitable she has so trained her senses to know what is good and what is, and, and what is not. like You put something in your mouth, you're like, that's terrible. She knows, oh, that's good. She perceives, she tastes that her merchandise is profitable. She is wise, and she also never sleeps. Her lamp does not go out at night. Here's the, the second night. This is a picture of the wise father in Proverbs chapter 7. He perceives also at night. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 6. For at the window of my house, this is the Father speaking to the Son, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near the corner, taking the road to her house, in twilight and in evening, at the time of night and at the time of darkness. Wisdom never sleeps. Wisdom is always watching. Wisdom seems sees the difference between the wise and the simple. The simple the ones out at night. Who are cavorting the, the, the wise, the wise woman, the wise father is in his house being aware of what the world is doing. This is the one who perceives. This woman does not sleep. She works tirelessly. She's the excellent wife and the energetic wife. And her light always shines. Her, she is not driven away by darkness. This should remind us of someone else, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But going on to verse 4, the light has come into the world, if I can get there. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. How is she on all the time? The wisdom of God is the light of man. There is no darkness. Darkness will never overcome the wisdom of God. This excellent wife will never be overthrown. The wicked, they live in darkness. They're controlled by darkness. She is not controlled by darkness. She does not serve it. It has no mastery over her, and neither should we. Neither should we live in darkness, be, be driven by, by darkness. But if you are in Christ... If you are his bride, your light will never go out. Because he has confirmed it. He has given it to you and again, sealed it with his spirit. This is how much he loves his bride, that there is no night for us ever again. Even though there may be temporary physical night, there is no spiritual night for us. All right, so here's the last verse we're going to look at. This is also the Janus verse. And so uh, Janus is a... Uh, Greek picture of looking forward and looking back. So this one looks back to her hands that work in the distaff and the spindle. Uh, so this is how you would you would weave clothes. And this is a two-person job. She's doing both of them. So looks back to her industriousness for her family and looks forward to verse 20 where she opens her hand to the poor. This is our hinge verse. It kind of puts a period on the previous section and starts the next sentence for the next section. Um, And her character and her work are commendable. How much time? Yeah, we're good. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 14. Two on this. I want you to see the works of her hands here. Chapter 12, verse 14. From the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good. And from the work of a man's hands comes back to him. By, your, by their fruits you shall know them. Don't just be hearers of the word, but doers also. Jesus says when he comes back, he's going to reward us for the works done either in good or in evil. And so her works are all good. And so we should devote ourselves to good works. That's why we gather. Hebrews 10. We gather. We don't forsake the gathering, not just because I show up to church and I check the box. And so if you're just showing up to check the box, First Timothy is going to be a great book for you in two weeks. Because the church is the bride of Christ. We gather so that we spur one another on to good works, so that we will live out of our identity as the bride. Her hands are. Or vigilant in her work. Chapter 14, verse 1 as well. This is the last cross reference we'll look at. We saw this last week. The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. This is the wise woman, part 1. So, in conclusion, very brief con- conclusion here. I gave you a lot. Many people in our congregation go back and listen to the messages afterward. Um, They're on our website. So they'll be there. But here's what I want you to take away. As lady wisdom, she seeks, she considers, she perceives what is good for the name of her husband and the sake of her family. If you are in Christ, you are his bride, you do the same. You seek what is good for the name of our husband you consider what is best for his bride the church you perceive what is good or evil you you taste and discern but if we're honest and we examine ourselves we're sadly far more like gomer than we are the excellent wife and if you're not familiar with the bible gomer is the most infamous woman in the bible for many reasons she's a prostitute And she loves being a prostitute so much that even when God sends her a prophet to buy her out of prostitution, she goes back to it. And Hosea, the most um, non-desirable of all the prophetic ministries, (laughs) has to go back to this adulterous woman. You know what God says? You do that because that's what I've done to Israel. You are adulterous. You have gone away more times than I can count. And I am bringing your shame upon myself because I choose to love you, not because you are worthy of being loved. Thank God for his grace. Thank God for the precious blood of Jesus Christ that makes us a spotless bride. And in him... We're given his righteousness and also his mind to be filled with wisdom and understanding. And so let all of us live out of that grace and truth. But if you're here this morning, apart from him, you are still that prostitute. Your heart is adulterous. Your heart loves everything but God. You put everything before him. And apart from him being your husband, you have no hope. You are ugly and wretched and dirty. But in him, he gives you spotless righteousness, which he applies on your account through his blood. So, ladies, you have plenty to consider this next week. A lot to discuss uh, when you meet next week. And so here's a final thought. This is for women. When culture seeks to distort or diminish femininity, I want you to take heart, ladies. Ladies. God chose the climax of this all-wise of books in exemplifying godly wisdom to put it into female form. You are fearfully and wonderfully made in his image and you reflect him like a mirror differently than we ever can. Your patience and your compassion and your concern and your nurturing, they are God-given qualities and don't let the world diminish that. Because in that, you glorify God. And the wise man of Proverbs 31 would not have the same ring, because this this is a book written to young men. So your femininity is a godly example to your families and to the church. Use it to his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We love you. What an awesome God you are, that you would take an ugly, imperfect bride like us. Those who would soon go after every false God and every false desire. You drew us, you sanctified us, you redeemed us, you preserve us, you will glorify us. And you did it all for your name's sake to gift us to your son. What a beautiful plan of redemption. Lord, let us hold marriage dearly because it pictures Christ and his church. Let us hold womanhood highly, not be influenced by the world, either the sensuousness or the perversion that we see in our day, but godly femininity that brings God glory, that builds up houses and raises up children, that encourages husbands and disciples, young women, May that be cared for and protected and built up in your church for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.